0: now with dave brown on ami tv it's the last friday of the broadcast year and therefore the last news panel of 2023 let's bring in the panelists michelle mcquig and joita gupta hello michelle morning dave and hello joita morning everyone all right we have 14 different topics to get to in the next 46 minutes so let's (laughs) jump right in 2023 was a busy news year let's try to recap it in less than an hour the best way to do this is by breaking it down into categories and themes so this segment is all about canadian politics and the only place to start is conservative leader pierre poilievre He spent 2023 cementing his own place as party leader. He also spent 2023 climbing in the polls. Most national polls have the Conservatives winning an easy majority in the next federal election. Michelle, what's your takeaway from Pierre Paulyev's 2023?
1: This was the year he officially arrived on the national scene. He'd been a huge player within the party circles for ages, but now I'd say he's a household name. He was even voted Newsmaker of the Year by most newsroom editors surveyed in CP's Newsmaker Survey of the Year. And uh, he is going to be the one to watch. He's, I think he's going to be the dominant player in federal politics for the next year or two, which, of course, is exactly when it matters, because we're facing a, a, an election no later than 2025. So he's got the wind at his back heading into whatever lies they had on that front.
0: Joeita, my observation on Pierre Poliev is he's found himself some winning issues. He clearly communicates on them cost of living, housing, addiction. He has found those sweet spots. He hits his points hard. He's done a great job of branding. And I think he was underestimated by uh, our industry in the media. And I believe he was underestimated by a lot of politicians as well. And he's basically eaten 2023 20, for breakfast.
2: Yeah, he certainly had a good year. And I have to say he's done really well in the polls. He he was neck-to-neck for most of the beginning of this year. And then he leaps ahead. Uh, and even now, though the lead for the the Tories is somewhat slipping, he's still in a wide, he's, he's widely ahead of the competition. So he's certainly done well this year. Uh, the one thing I would caution is, is assuming that that necessarily means a translation into personal popularity for poliev moving forward especially as we get closer to that election one has to wonder how much of this has to do with Uh, Pierre Polyev and his personal qualities and his abilities to communicate an issue effectively and, as you say, have the wind at his back and how much of it has to do with disenchantment with the uh, existing Liberal Party or people just not caring. Um, A lot of people have made the argument that Pierre Polyev's popularity stems from the, the whole notion of uh, economy stupid, which means when the economy is doing badly, people are more likely to blame the government in power. And if the economic situation improves, that might actually change the fortunes of the liberals and Pierre Poliev. So I'm a little less confident that his seismic lead right now will actually translate into um sweeping the elections in 2025 but that's still quite a ways away so we'll have to wait and watch.
0: Yeah, qual- just the, the end of conclusion here is just quality year, the importance of communication and finding winning issues and the guy did that. There's no doubt about it. Okay. He did. Yeah. The federal government reached a tentative healthcare funding mm-hmm. agreement with the provinces in February. Billions of dollars of spending will be injected into provincial systems. The granular details of the agreements are still being finalized, but three provinces are already on board here completely. BC, PEI, and as recently as yesterday, Alberta. Joita, how do you reflect on healthcare policy as the year comes to a close?
2: I'm just glad that they, people have stopped quarreling about it left, right, and center. Uh, I'm always <laughs> happy to see announcements about funding for healthcare, and we've just had announcements about rolling out dental care, which I think will be a huge uh, boon to many Canadians across the country. With all of that said, though, my biggest concern coming away from this year is announcements are well and good. A grievance yeah. are well and good. Even putting money towards uh, healthcare is, you know, desperately needed, and it's all well and good. But so much of this, the issues that we've talked about throughout the year remain issues to this day, whether it's long wait times, access to healthcare in rural parts of the country, uh, staff shortages. So I think it needs a little bit more than money. And I would be very curious to see what implementation looks like if I had to truly reflect on how effective these announcements have been. Ask me again in 12 months' time at the end of next year, because that's hopefully when we'll actually see results of the announcements made this year and the agreement struck this year.
0: Yeah, the situation on the ground is quite bad right now. Quebec is having ER issues. Regina, Saskatchewan has reported ER issues this week. There's a lot of strain going on in the system in real time. So whatever optimism or positivity you might want to reflect in regards to spending, right now execution isn't there. But, Michelle, my takeaway on this is digital accountability. Like, accountability was built into this funding deal. You have to start showing wait times as a province, as part of your health authorities, on surgeries, on staffing, family doctor access, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, At the very least, my takeaway is there's been a shift towards modernization of the healthcare system in 2023, and that's a positive.
1: That is a positive, and I would argue another one is the fact that obviously— issues that once seemed intractable can at some point be resolved. You might remember last year, health was a seriously contentious issue among the feds and the provinces to the point where some health ministers walked out of a meeting. I don't know if you remember, we we talked about it on the panel at that point, but it was all it was a it there were everyone was very locked into their position, there was no movement at all. And yet here we are at the end of 2023 with three deals in place, including one of the most anti-federal provinces, uh, Alberta signed on, that's a pretty big win for the feds. So um, it, it's kind of hopeful on that front. But I like Joita, I remain a little bit skeptical and I look as my model to the $10 a day childcare programs that were rolled out and announced with the feds. Those programs have not been smoothly spun out. Uh, A number of provinces have reported issues and backlogs and the fact that the programs are not yet in place. So until we see those dollars actually spent and delivering services healthcare-wise, I too am a little
0: skeptical as to how it's going to play out. All right, we're moving well here. Let's move over to foreign interference in Canadian politics because foreign interference was on the radar for huge swaths of the year with two key focal points. Whether the federal government would call a public inquiry into Chinese interference in elections... In the end, they did, after quite a bit of drama. The other popped up at the end of the summer. Canada accused the Indian government of being involved in the assassination of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. Michelle, where's your mind on the foreign interference issue as 2023 comes to a close?
1: I think this one has potential to be an election issue. I don't think this issue is going away at any point. The, the Liberals handling it initially exposed them to a lot of criticism that they did then to walk back. And foreign interference allegations, it, it sounds uh, in theory, I think, like one of those issues that people won't really care about because it's very inside baseball or it can be. But we've seen how rhetoric around foreign interference can play out. It does affect people where they live in their communities. People do keep fa- pe- members of diasporas do face repercussions around allegations like this. So I do think this is going to be an issue that persists. There's going to be a lot of demands for accountability. The India issue is nowhere near resolved. China's influence shows no signs of diminishing and the relationship is not warming up at all. Uh, So I don't think we're anywhere near done with this one. I think this was the opening chapter of a much longer and, and potentially uglier saga.
0: You know, Joita, I'm inclined to disagree a little bit with Michelle on this one, considering the accusation that was levied towards the Indian government in September about assassinating Canadian citizens on Canadian soil the temperature on that one went down in a big way there's no doubt that it can still simmer or bubble or boil but i actually kind of disagree i think this is not a political winning issue for anybody involved and that's why i think over the course of the last two or three months it's really died down
2: um i'm i don't entirely agree with your position, or Michelle's, for that matter. I think the the Indian issue has certainly simmered down. It, it, it reached a peak in the fall, um, and Trudeau took a lot of heat over it initially. But they've since made some arrests in relation to the assassination attempt, so it has bolstered Trudeau's position. And as you said, lots of drama around the uh, public inquiry into Chinese election interference, and I think these issues remain very relevant to this day, including with the election coming up. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what the public inquiry really reveals um, and mm-hmm. what findings and recommendations are made. But the specter of foreign interference in the and ne- the upcoming federal elections is a very real one. And I think the impact of anything that is done today to mitigate um, foreign interference, we will probably see the results of that maybe 18 months from now when the next election rolls around. So it's a very much a live issue. And I think it's going to be one that continues to dominate the headlines. Uh, it has in 2023, and I think it will continue to do so in 2024.
0: Okay, the year comes to a close with the Liberals and NDP still engaged in their supply and confidence agreement. There have been some bumps along the way, and there's still some tension around universal pharmacare frameworks. But there's been expansion of daycare, although, like Michelle mentioned, the rollout has not been wildly smooth. The dental care framework has been unveiled, and there's been some alignment on housing, grocery costs, and the carbon price. Some alignment. (laughs) Joita, what's your perception of the Supply and Confidence Agreement heading into 2024?
2: I think we're finally seeing concrete results. We've had uh, the dental care announcement recently, and we are seeing some movement towards uh, improving it on daycare as well as rolling out a pharma care plan. So it's one of those situations which, if the implementation around some of their, these key policy areas is successful, these are easy wins for the Liberals going forward. It remains to be seen to what extent the NDP can leverage the issue to say that we put a lot of pressure on the Liberal government to make it happen, which it would be true. But whether or not it would I'm resonate not- with voters is, is you know, is is a whole other question. I also think it's very interesting to see what kind of an impact this would have on the um, on the Tory position, to because once people have uh, dental care and it's been, you know, they benefited from it for a little under two years, even if they didn't vote for dental care originally or they didn't care about it, if they benefit from it two years down the line, they'd be less likely to want to get rid of it. And so it really puts the Tories in an interesting position as to how they uh position themselves vis-a-vis some of these programs do they keep them do they change them do they uh get rid of them so it'll be it's it certainly changed the landscape uh and we are seeing some very tangible and concrete benefits come out of the confidence and supply agreement so i don't see that going in anywhere but it remains to be seen who really benefits, whether it's the Liberals
0: or the NDP. Michelle, I still perceive the marriage as being an uneasy one, but it's one that's proven Mm -hmm. to be mutually beneficial for both of them, because the Liberals nor the NDP want an election right now. We talked about (laughs) those polling numbers as they currently stand. And the fact is, where I believe that foreign interference is not a winning political issue, I believe that all of these policies that are trickling out of this agreement could be big-time political-winning issues. So I believe the marriage stays uneasy in 2024. Nobody in that marriage wants to get out of it in any kind of concrete way. So I see this, I see this perception as an uh, uneasy marriage, but one that uh, they're both happy to be in.
1: Yeah, I would probably agree with that. Now, it it has been interesting to watch Jagmeet Singh part company with Trudeau more often in in recent months than we saw earlier in this agreement. Um, There was even one issue where they said that they might not vote with the the Liberals. So there's been a little more saber rattling and a a few more sounds of discontent. Whether that's a sign of true unease or just some some effort to distinguish themselves from the liberals, because they do face quite a lot of opposition commentary about a coalition and how they're tarred with the same brush, etc. So maybe that's some baggage that the Liberal, the NDP is a little less willing to shoulder now. But I, at the end of the day, I do think that the benefits outweigh the drawbacks for those two parties in staying aligned and staying together. Certainly, the Liberals definitely need the help very badly. They, they are still a minority government, and they, they cannot execute their agenda without that NDP support. But I think you're right that uh, 2025 is the year that most people have in mind. That's when the deal ends. And I think that everyone's going to try to keep their powder dry to sort of try to get some of the wind out of the conservative sails ahead of that
0: year. All right. One note here on regional politics. There were four provincial or territorial elections this year. Prince Edward Islanders, Albertans, Manitobans, and Northwest Territorians all went to the polls. Mm -hmm. Dennis King and the Progressive Conservatives won in PEI. Daniel Smith and the United Conservative Party won in Alberta. Wab Kanu and the NDP won in Manitoba. And R.J. Simpson is the new premier in the Northwest Territories. Michelle, which of these results do you find most compelling?
1: Uh, the Wab Canoes victory was obviously a huge moment. First uh, First Nations premier of a province elected. It was very exciting for a lot of people. But Danielle Smith is proving to be a pretty consequential player on the federal scene. Uh, she's a disruptor. She she makes no bones about the fact that she has a lot of issues with the federal government and intends to make those fights quite public. Uh, the CPP issue in Alberta, of course, is just beginning to really wind up, wind, uh, gear up, I should say. Um, there's a pretty long, bruising fight expected there. So Wab canoes, I think is, is deeply significant on a number of levels, but Daniel Smith's is having the most immediate federal impact, I would argue.
0: Yeah, you'll find agreement with me there. Uh, Daniel Smith uh, won a majority consolidated power in the party and is immediately gone to try and change the face of Alberta and put herself on the federal stage. You mentioned their own potential pension plan and also doing a lot of health care reform. You know, it's so funny. So many politicians will tell you, we need years to consult and study. No, 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 no. The Alberta, the uh, the UCP in Alberta says, let's go make some changes and we're just going to plow ahead. And in a way, it's almost admirable. So a Daniel Smith by far is the most compelling, uh, politician on the regional stage this year. Joita, what about you? Which of these election results do you find most compelling?
2: I agree with the both of you. I think you as the first indigenous premier, is a very significant for all for the country. Uh, but Danielle Smith, who was originally not uh, predicted to win the election—I mean, historically, the, the conservatives do well in Alberta, but in this particular in a preceding election— she wasn't the favorite to win, and yet she pulled out that win and has continued to make waves, uh, provincially and federally. So I would definitely say that's been the most significant election. The other thing to note, and I think uh, it is worth considering, is that now uh, out of ten uh, provincial leaders, uh, only one is a Liberal; two are now NDP, and the rest are Conservatives of any st- various stripes. So it remains to be seen whether this is uh, whether this portends. Um, the fate of federal politics in a year or so to come and also puts Trudeau in a difficult position because now he's really effectively got one ally provincially and he's being attacked by nine others. So it'll be very interesting to see how provincial and federal relationships play out in the next year as well.
0: Okay, that's politics. Coming up after the break, it's all about the economy, including the ongoing cost of living crisis. This is the Now News panel on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.